0: I trust the Lord may bless us this morning as we look at that passage I read earlier from Isaiah, end of chapter 63 into chapter 64, uh, thinking in particular of the first words in chapter 64, but looking at the verses around as well. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. What we have here is one of the great prayers of the Bible. Now, there are many great prayers out there in the Bible. This, I believe, is one of the greatest. Begins in chapter 63, verse 15, goes through to the end of chapter 64, and it's Isaiah pleading with God for his nation. One of those great prayers that we get uh, from time to time in the Old Testament particularly. So let me ask you one or two questions to see if you can uh, answer them quietly. I certainly don't want anyone to shout anything out, but uh, answer quietly yourself how would you view your own spiritual condition we've come out of what 16 17 months or coming out of lockdown and a very restricted and restrained circumstances it may well have affected you physically it may well have affected you mentally it may have affected you spiritually how do you view your own suspicion and let's take that a little wider how do you view the spiritual condition of your church Of Wales, the UK, the world, however wide your your vision may be. How do you view the influence of Christianity on our society? Do you think it's getting stronger or is it getting more and more irrelevant as the years go by? Are you content with your walk with the Lord? Are you feeling comfortable in your spiritual condition? Are you feeling effective in the way that you are living your Christian life? Well, I wonder, as we look at our own circumstances, we look at our church, we look at our land, would we say perhaps we're in decline? And would we say that we are in maintenance mode or growth mode? What do I mean by that? Are we happy just to keep things ticking along? Uh, We know that things aren't going too well, so we're in maintenance mode. We'll keep things as they are, as they've always been. There are many churches in Wales like that, just ticking over, keeping on the same old way. Or would we say, well, thank God we're in growth mode. Thank God that we are seeing people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, We've seen people being saved. We are going on with the Lord ourselves. We are growing. How would we view all of these things? One of my concerns, I'm sure it may be yours as well, is this. That when we hear people pray in our prayer meetings, no longer do we hear many prayers for God to come into our church, to come into our land, to break through and come down. Where is the longing that maybe some of our forefathers knew? Or to put it like this, uh, Isaiah 64 verse 1 begins with that little word, O. Oh. Where is the O oh in our prayers? What do I mean by that? Where is the longing? Where is the desire that God might do something? I wonder, are we living in an age where even the Christian church has low expectations of God? We pray for people, quite rightly. We pray for church activities, quite rightly. But I wonder, are we praying for God to visit in power? You see, that's the theme of this prayer. The need to pray for God to come down among us in power. The situation when Isaiah was praying and uh, maybe speaking these words whether that God's people were far from him we're talking about the people of god the nation of israel those whom god had saved and redeemed and put in the promised land uh, those who were his covenant people were far from him the nation was in a mess and as far as the people were concerned god seemed far away so what does isaiah do in that situation does he say we better organize a committee Does he say, well, we better get some people together to brainstorm this or whatever else we may think of today? No, Isaiah says, we must pray into that situation. And Isaiah himself leads by example by pleading with God. And really, we can sum up the whole of this prayer in two very brief sentences or phrases he's got here. And if you don't remember anything else that comes this morning, Try and take this away with you. This prayer can be summed up by words in chapter 63, verse 15, where he begins with, look down. And then in chapter 64 and verse 1, come down. Look down, come down. What's he saying to God? Look down from heaven upon the mess that we're in, upon our circumstances and our needs. Then will you look down and see where we are, then please come down. Enter into that situation and do something about it. If there's two things that we could usefully pray in our prayer meetings, I believe they're these little sentences. Look down, come down. Let's open that up a bit, shall we, and see how does Isaiah handle this here? Well, I've got three little points for you this morning. And the first is this. He complains. That's an interesting one, isn't it? They say Isaiah begins by complaining to God. If you look in chapter 63 and verse 15, he says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. What's he saying? He's complaining. Where is God? Where are you, God? Three things he says they are lacking. They were lacking God's presence. Look what he says. Look down from heaven. Look down from your holy and beautiful habitation. In other words, Isaiah is saying, Lord, we know you're there in heaven, but we want to hear with us, amongst us, here in this world, in our day-to-day circumstances. It's as if God was remote from them. Yes, you are in heaven. That is your dwelling. But Lord, we are lacking that sense that, that our forefathers knew of that reality of your presence with us in our day-to-day life. They were lacking that sense of the presence of God. They were also lacking God's power. Where are your zeal and your might? They knew of God's power. They knew their history. They knew what God had done in the past. They knew of the the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, and they knew of the coming into the promised land and defeat of their enemies, how God had provided for them, and they knew of all of these things. They knew of the power of God in history, but they weren't knowing it and experiencing it in their present circumstances. They were lacking God's presence. They were lacking God's power. And third thing, they were lacking God's pity, the stirring of your inner parts, your compassion, are held back from me lord why aren't you showing compassion on us why aren't you showing pity on us i wonder we look at our land today can we identify with any of those things but we say we are lacking that felt knowledge of the presence of god amongst us we are lacking seeing the power of god greatly at work We are lacking that sense of the pity, the compassion of God that we read about in the Bible, we read about in church history, and we can hear about in certain parts of the world today. I would say that was a healthy complaint, because Isaiah knew it shouldn't be like that. As God's people, things should be better. And so it set him to ask another question of himself, why are we like this? And we can see he answers that in verses 16 to 19. And he points out a couple of things. In verse 17, he says, they have wandered from God. O oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Now, in case you misunderstand that, he's not blaming God there for the fact that they are wandering from him. The, the way the, the Jewish Hebrew mind would think, uh, God is the first cause of everything. So the fact that they have wandered from God, they put in the context of it's our fault, but God has allowed it to happen. They had wandered from God. How have we got here? We didn't set out to be in this position. I wonder, have you ever been as I have on a a walk, on perhaps a nice sunny day, and you've just uh, wandered away? Quite a number of occasions when... uh, particularly if we go on holiday when the children were young. Uh, we used to like to go out for a nice walk on a, a Sunday afternoon and uh, other times too. I remember one particular Sunday I said to the family, oh, it's a nice little walk here, L- little stroll. Let's just go out for a little stroll here. And uh, we went out and we started a nice little stroll. That looks interesting. Oh, there's a nice view. Let's have a look over there. Oh, look, that looks a nice path. Let's take that. And we wandered and we wandered and we ended on top of a mountain. And we have no idea, really, how we got there. The children weren't too pleased with the idea because they also had to come back again as well. And uh, how did we get there? We didn't set out to be on the top of a mountain. We just wandered. Things took our attention. Things took our attraction. Let's try that path. Let's try that, see that view. And somehow we got to where we never intended to be. And isn't that often the case spiritually as well? We never set out to wander from God but it can just happen. We can be taken up with a particular interest here or a particular thing there or maybe a particular sin that seems attractive to us, whatever it may be, and somehow we can just wander away. And when we pause and take stock, we say, well, how did I get in this position here? They had wandered, And the other thing they had done, they had hardened their hearts. Verse 17 again, we've hardened our hearts so we fear you not. Their hearts have been hardened against God. How had they got like that? How can they get in that situation? It resulted in the fact that there was no more fear of God there. It says, we fear you not. That right fear, that right awe, respect for a holy God, had gone. In other words, what they were doing was diminishing God. They were forgetting who God really is. A holy God, a just God, a righteous God. One who is to be feared in the the right sense of that word. That we might obey him and trust him and follow him and know his blessing. They have forgotten the sense of the fear of God. And practically what had happened, verse 18, verse 19. The temple had been destroyed by their enemies and they have become like everyone else. I think verse 18 is in some ways one of the saddest verses in the Bible. They said, we've become like those over whom you have never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. In other words, we are just like all the nations around us. They can't tell that we're any different. Yes, we, the covenant people of God, have just become like all the other nations around us. And I wonder as Christians, could that be said of us in these days? Do people say, oh, I can see that you're a Christian. I can see that you're different. Or do they say, well, you're just like us really, aren't you? One commentator put it like this. He said, God's people cannot sink any lower than that. Not being identified as the people of God. So he complains. Secondly, what does he do? He confesses. His complaints led him to find the source of the problem. And he soon found that the problem was not with God. The problem was with themselves. So we can see that in chapter 64, in a couple of verses, uh, in verse 5, the second part of that verse, he says, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. Shall we be saved? You are angry. We have sinned. And so he began to see the problem was not with God, who is quite rightly angry with them, because of their sin, because of their wandering, because of their hardness of heart, because of their rebellion. We can see the extent of that in verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted leaf. We all fade like a leaf. Notice what Isaiah is doing there. Isaiah probably was not guilty of those things himself. But what he's doing is associating himself with the people. He's saying, I am one of this nation. And as a nation, this is where we are. We are unclean. We fade like a leaf. Our righteousness are like polluted garments. He's saying, this has affected us all. Lord, you are rightly angry with us. The effect of it was it made them unclean. You've got there in verse uh, 6, we become like one who is unclean. Uh, you've got in the NIV there, filthy rags. What it's talking about, again, is what we were saying a little earlier to the children, isn't it? That it's on the inside is our problem. Over the last 18 months, we've probably washed our hands and our faces with soap and with uh, disinfectant and what have you more than we've ever done before. Outside, we're probably the cleanest we've ever been. But inside, we can be so unclean. We can have those dirty ways. We can have those thoughts that we know shouldn't be there. We can have those desires that we know shouldn't be there. We can have those actions that come from the thoughts, doing things that are not pleasing to God, not doing things that are pleasing to him. We can let words come out of our mouth that we wish we had never spoken and so on. What's the problem? Unclean inside and you see what it made the people it made them powerless end of verse six we all fade like a leaf our iniquities like the wind take us away isn't that a graphic picture they were like leaves being swept away by the wind sin swallows us up and carries us away that's the picture so that we can't resist it We know what it is, don't we, to see the leaves being blown along the street on a windy day. Uh, You can't control them. They just go where they will. What he's saying is that's the effect that sin has had in your lives. It's caught you up. It's swept you away. And you've lost control over where it is taking you. You can't resist it. And maybe even worse of all, It made them prayerless. Again, another very sad verse, verse 7. Isaiah looks at the land and he says, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You've hidden your face from us. you made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Who is he talking about? The very people of God. And he's saying, I can't find one who rouses himself to take hold of you to call upon your name. And the effect is, they were cut off from God. These very things were spoken to God's people. I wonder, can we think ourselves, could any of these things be true of me, of my church? Am I swept along by some sin? Am I being caught up by desires inside that shouldn't be there? Am I praying as I ought to? Am I seeking God that I may lay hold of him? Could they in any way be true of us? If they are, then confession and repentance is needed. So we've seen his complaint. We've seen his confession. And the third thing, he cries to God. And that we see the beginning of chapter 64 and indeed the end of the chapter as well. And it's really summed up in our focus verse. This is the cry that comes from his heart. This isn't a prayer that comes from carefully studied theology this isn't a prayer that he's crafted taking a long time thinking about it or reciting from a litany somewhere this is a prayer that comes from a desperate and a needy heart he cries out to god "O lord that you would rend the heavens and come down what was the aim of his prayer to bring god down into their midst By his power. Wow, we might say. That's a bold prayer, isn't it? How could I ever pray a prayer like that? Well, maybe Isaiah, because he was an important prophet and a man of God, maybe I could understand perhaps pastors or missionaries praying prayers like that, but I'm just an ordinary little Christian. How can I ever be as bold as to pray a prayer like that? Because Isaiah could pray it. And he was in many ways an ordinary believer, so we can pray it too. And this is why. Look at the basis of his prayer. It shows us how we can pray like this. He knew that God was their father. He repeats it twice. In chapter 63 and verse 16, you are our father. In chapter 64 and verse 8, now, O Lord, you are our father. He is praying this prayer on the basis of his relationship with God as a child of his heavenly Father. And he's our Father too. And knowing that gives us confidence and boldness to work. I'm reminding of a a story that I read a little while ago. It was in a a public school somewhere in England. Don't know which one, probably one of the well-known public schools there. And the headmaster in that school was a very... um, authoritarian character and the pupils and indeed some of the staff were afraid of him if you had to see the headmaster it usually meant you were in serious trouble if you needed to see him you had to make an appointment you had to then wait outside till you were called in and he was a quite a severe austere kind of man and then one day one of the pupils was seen going up to the door didn't even knock he opened the door he went in He spoke to the headmaster and he came out again with a smile on his face. And the other pupils were lined up outside waiting to go in. They thought, well, what's happened there? That's not right. And they said, well, how come you look so happy just having been in to this man who they were scared stiff of? Oh, he said, he's my dad. I can go in whenever I like. I can ask whatever I want. I may not get it, but I can ask and he won't tell me off. What was the difference? He had access... To the head because he was his father that gave him confidence and boldness to ask whatever he wanted he knew he might not get it if the father wasn't willing but he could ask if that is true of an ordinary human relationship how much more true is it of our relationship With our heavenly father he gives us boldness and confidence as if he says yeah come to me come on in i'm available you don't have to make an appointment you don't have to queue up in line outside come whenever you desire and i'm there i will listen to you and i will answer you in my way and in my time but you can always come and you can always ask they come because god was their father they also come because he was their lord Chapter 63, verse 17. O Lord, he says. And again in 64 and verse 8, now, O Lord, they knew they were servants of their Lord. And the relationship, and it's a lovely picture, this, was of potter and clay. Verse 8 says, Now, O Lord, you are our Father. There's his basis for praying. We are the clay, and you are our potter we are all the work of your hand now i know nothing about pottery but i have seen potters at work and what i know is this that a potter cares about what he or she is making the potter wants the best possible pot and if something is going slightly wrong they will remake it if it goes wrong now what i'm going to say now will only apply to any of you who are at least my age you switch for a moment and come back in a few seconds. I can remember years ago when television was black and white and when television was only on in the evenings and it wasn't on in the daytime they used to have what they called a test card. So if you had a new television you could tune it in and see it. And one of those test cards, I don't know if any of you remember it, was of a potter black and white, some people would watch this for hours and it was simply a potter uh, shaping a pot and getting it right and people would would watch this for, for hours on end. What was going on? The potter was so precise and accurate that it had to be a perfect pot. That is the picture that Isaiah is giving to us here. What he's saying is we are the work of God's hands. He is the potter he's caring about what he's making that is our lives he wants the best possible pot he wants us to be as much like Jesus as he's able to make us and if things are going wrong he will remake us and so as we come and say I know I got that wrong forgive me he'll say of course and he will remake us and he prays this prayer on the basis that they were God's people verse 9 he says Be not angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Look, we are all your people. They knew the covenant people of God. They had a faithful God who would never abandon his people. So as Isaiah could pray that prayer, so can we on the same basis that he is our father, He is our Lord, he is the potter, we are the clay, he's molding and making us. And if we are born again of the Spirit of God, and we are the children of God, we too are under the new covenant, and God is a faithful God to his people. But what were the effects of this prayer? What would happen if God were to come down now? Well, look in the end of verse 1. He said, "Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence when God comes down mountains quake at his presence that doesn't have to be interpreted just literally though that is possible but think of the mountains facing us in Wales not these in the valleys but the mountains of unbelief the mountains of materialism the mountains of sin the mountains of of apathy that are built up against God's and against his church. When God comes, these mountains, what happens to them? They melt, they quake, they fall away. We go on to see in in verse 2, I love this, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, you make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations might tremble at your presence. When God comes down, his enemies, his opponents, unbelievers, tremble at his presence. And as a result of that trembling, they're converted. They're saved. They come to know the Lord. And as verse 3 tells us, awesome, unexpected things begin to happen when God comes down. Does that excite you? Let me try and excite you a little more. What happens when God comes to an individual in this way? When God comes down and touches an individual, spiritual desires are awakened. There is conviction of sin. Sins that maybe we were totally unaware of can become very real to us. There is conviction of sin. There is a desire to seek after God. There is a desire to worship him. There is a desire to read his word, to meet together with God's people, to serve him as well and as faithfully as we are able to. We find that our love for God increases. Our love for fellow believers increases. Our love for the lost will increase. We'll find when God touches us, we'll have greater power in our witness. We'll be more effective. And we'll find that people are different some of you may be old enough to have remembered one or two people that were converted in the 1904 revival in Wales I can remember going to churches when I was a young preacher many years ago and occasionally some of those would be in the congregation and I can say for everyone there was something different about them there was a deep-seated and a deep-rooted joy There was a way that you could tell that they knew God in in a way that most people in our day don't know God. Something about them. Probably the most recent or one of the most recent revivals in the United Kingdom took place in Scotland in the Isle of Lewis in 1971. I had the privilege of visiting that island three years later 1974. And many of those people had been touched by the revival three years earlier. And I would say of each one, they were different. They were warm. They were joyful. They would speak of the Lord in a perfectly natural way. They would want to know of your experience with the Lord. They would share theirs in conversation with people. They would automatically talk about the Lord. They would love his word. You couldn't keep them away from the prayer meeting. They had prayer meetings on a Saturday night in a very large room, and you have to queue to go in. And so, I could go on. They were different. They had been changed by the touch of God. It was on that very island, the Isle of Lewis, back in 1949, when two elderly women, both in their eighties, two sisters, were touched by God in such a way that they were his instruments for bringing revival to that island. You may know the story, Peggy and Catherine, Peggy was blind, Catherine was severely arthritic, they were housebound, Uh, they couldn't go out to church, there was virtually nothing they could do but pray. And God so met with them and burdened them that they prayed that God would work on their island and he would come down in power as Isaiah is praying here. And they were led by God to pray for a certain man to come and be his agent of revival in that island, Duncan Campbell. Some of you may well have read his story. And they contacted him and he wasn't willing to come. He said, no, my diary's full, I can't come. But they prayed and contacted him again. And he knew he had no choice. He had to come. And he arrived on that island. And for three years, there was revival on that island so that the majority of people were Christians. Pubs closed never to re- reopen. Crimes ceased. The jails were empty. Missionaries were sent all around the world. And in three years, God did a remarkable work. And to some extent, the evidence in a little way is still there today. When God comes, it is a thrilling thing. When God comes to a nation, thousands are converted. Churches are packed. But beyond that, you have all sorts of social effects that take place as well. We're living in a day, aren't we, where there's so much social unrest. We are aware of so many things taking place that, that grieve us. And we say, what is the answer to these things? And so many people tinker around on the edges and they may do a bit of good here, a bit of good there. The big answer is pray for God to come. When God comes, he will sort people out. A couple of little examples. Back in 1904-5 in Swansea in the revival, you will find that uh, all the children there had a habit of putting their elderly parents in the the, the workhouses for the poor. And they were just kind of, dumped them there no social security in those days when the revival came what happened was that all of those people who were converted came and took their parents out of those workhouses for the poor and took them back into their own homes and began living with them for the first time since records began the swansea court had no cases of drunkenness to deal with it's estimated in 1804-5. About 100,000 people out of a population that was far, far smaller than today became Christians and the effect was worldwide. I can remember many, many years ago when I was a a student, so I'm going back now into prehistory, I heard a man speak who's probably the leading expert in the world on revivals. His name is Edwin Orr. You can still see him on YouTube and he's, he's worth looking up. And I remember now a lecture he gave when he spoke about the influence of the Welsh revival on the whole world. And he outlined how every continent, apart from Antarctica where no one lived, was touched by the Welsh revival. With missionaries going out, with news going out, with the work of the spirit happening, it had a worldwide effect. Take Ulster. There was a revival in Ulster in the 1920s. A wonderful work of God. Many of them in Belfast were shipyard workers. Many of them became Christians. And a a wonderful thing happened. The owners of the shipyard had to build new storage huts because so many tools had been stolen by the workers when they were converted, they wanted to return them. And so many stolen tools were returned, they didn't know enough place to store them. And they had to build new storage huts to put them all in. You see, when God touches a nation, dramatic and wonderful things happen. Dr Lloyd-Jones once described revival. He said, it means, Revival means days of heaven on earth. Does that whet your appetite? Does that warm your heart? Or that we might know something of that again. Do we want God to do it again? Can he do it again? Of course he can. He's the same God. He never changes. What are we to do? We repent of our sin, just as Isaiah told these people. We pray with confidence and boldness. And expectation. And I wonder, has that element of expectation been missing from our prayers? We expect and we wait. Do you notice in 64 verse 4, we have these wonderful words. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you. Listen to this. Who acts for those who wait for him. We have a God who acts. But we are to wait. His timing is always right. He is a sovereign God. But he listens as his people pray. And most revivals start with prayer. Edwin Orr, whom I quoted just now, said this on one occasion. And he has studied virtually every revival that's ever taken place over I don't know how many hundreds of years. And he said this. When God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them praying. Notice that word. When God is ready, it is God's will to do something new amongst people. He always, not sometimes but occasionally, he always sets them praying. So as we think of these words this morning, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, may the O return to our prayers. May we stir ourselves up to lay hold of God. May God come down among us and by his grace may it be in power and may it be soon.